Amen. Amen. Thanks, Zach. I tell you, thanks to this gathering band. Thanks to those who helped us pull off the worship service in here today. This is different, a little different look than usual, but we're doing a lot of things differently than we used to do. But we wanted to be able to give people room to spread out in the next few weeks. I think hopefully and prayerfully we're going to even continue to see this service grow. It's good to see a lot of you back. I mean, a lot of you I haven't seen since, well, now it's like March or so. And uh, it's good to see some of you back, and it's good to see those who are joining us for the first time who are our guests today. We're so grateful that you're here. We're looking forward to God giving us, hey, a great year, a great year as the university here at Tech begins and all the different things happen. So we're so thankful for what the Lord is doing. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Over the last few weeks, I've been going through a study of Moses, the leadership of Moses, his life, really the nation of Israel. When you look at the nation itself, you see how God is working. In Exodus chapter 1, God gave the nation people. Because if you're a nation, you got to have people. And there in Egypt, God multiplied his people. He multiplied the nation. Even when there was oppression coming against them, guess what? They continued to multiply because God was building a nation. Then God gave them a leader because every nation needs a leader. And there was a guy named Moses that he called. At the age of 80 years old, Moses stepped forward and he gave leadership to the people. And then God is going to give them land. He is moving them over toward what we will refer to as the promised land, Canaan. They're on that journey even now. But one of the things that God wanted to instill within them was a godly culture. He wanted them to have an identity. Now, what is a culture? A culture is a way of life. It encompasses beliefs and values and practices and customs. That's what a culture is. And he wanted to somehow speak into their lives so that they had a culture, a way of life. You know, there are so many things that you can find even today of different cultures, of ways of life. It can be impacted whether you come from the urban or the rural where you come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, you can find different cultural norms. Hey, you can even find cultural differences between North Louisiana and South Louisiana, right? I noticed that it is, impacts even the language itself. When I moved down to South Mississippi, for example, when I was beginning to get into the South Louisiana vocabulary, I realized that making groceries, well, making groceries meant you were shopping for groceries. And I was like, what? I, I heard the word lanyap for the very first time. Lanyap, which meant like a little something extra, a little something maybe even for free that you get. I realized that when you catch a sack of lay in South Louisiana, that means that you're catching a white perch, according to our North Louisiana terminology. I realized that things were just different. Perhaps some um, Perhaps my preacher friend, as he went out, as he was visiting, and he was telling one of his members about how Aunt Emmy had passed away. And he heard the response that reminded him that he wasn't in North Louisiana or North Mississippi anymore. He, as he related that Aunt Emmy passed away, his member looked and said, Oh, okay, well, when are they going to wake her? My preacher friend said, Wake her? She passed away. She's not going to awake. 
I know what you said, preacher, but when are they going to wake her? No, 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 you didn't understand what I said. I said she died. She died. She can't be awakened. Not at least this moment. I know what you said. I'm just asking the simple question, when will they wake her? My preacher friend looked at him and said, look, if you put dynamite in her nostril, she's not going to wake up right now. She is dead. And realized that here we're having a communication issue because of a cultural issue, that what my preacher friend referred to as a visitation was what this man referred to as awake. I'm just saying that culturally there are differences. There's a way of life. There's a language. There's sometimes values and beliefs and practices and what God does here, as God gives these commandments, as God gives these laws, is he's trying to say, this is the way of life. This is how I want you as a nation to respond. I want you to live in relationship with each other in such a manner. So here we are. We're embarking upon this framework for a godly culture. So look in verse 1. It says, God spoke all these words. So God was the one that was giving this culture. This is not just Moses. This is God. And God's going to give them these laws. Now, these are going to be moral laws. When you look at the Old Testament, you'll find ceremonial law, you'll find civil law, and you'll find moral law. The ceremonial law will somehow dictate the practices of like the sacrifices, the ceremonies, the rituals. You'll look through and you'll see where God says, hey, this is how you bring this sacrifice. Now, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, they do not have authority over us today. Why? Because we do not bring such sacrifices. I believe that no one here brought a sheep with them this morning or a goat. I hope you didn't. It's hot. If you left him in the car, it's not good. I don't think any of you did that. Why? Because we do not prescribe to the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ fulfilled the ceremonies of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ fulfilled the sacrifice of the Old Testament. That way, we don't have to bring sacrifices now. When you look at the civil law, when the civil law will specifically speak to Israel, to the nation, it was a theocracy. We are not a theocracy, but Israel was. And because of the relationship God had with Israel, you will find civil law. Now, I admit that when you look at some of our civil law, it will reflect what you see in the Old Testament. It amazes me every time I read through some of the similarities. But the civil law itself is not in effect for us as a nation. We're different from Israel. I don't care. I am grateful that I live in the United States of America, but at the same time, we are not Israel. We never have been. We never will be. Israel was a specific moment of time, a specific people that God called to use to bring forth the Messiah. But the moral law, I believe the moral law still governs our lives because the moral law is based upon the character of God, and the character of God never changes. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The right and wrong, it's always been the same. There's a standard that God gives. Unfortunately, as Adrian Rogers said some years ago, that today morality is dictated by the majority. Morality is determined by the majority. And because of that, we see chaos in our society. You see, there is a morality that is based in God's Word, and that is the morality we see reflected in these Ten Commandments. Verse 2 
There it says, as God is speaking, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. In the preamble, God says, I am the one who freed you. I am the one that delivered you. And because of that, obviously, I have the responsibility to speak to you. I have the accountability. I have the authority to tell you what to do. This is like a king speaking to a servant, speaking to his people. He said, I've got this authority over you. And I know, again, we're in the New Testament. We're living in the New Testament age, that is. And I will say this. You and I have been delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ. We have experienced our own exodus from Egypt. And because of that, God still can speak into our lives. He has the authority. And just because you're free doesn't mean that, you, that somehow you have ceded your responsibility before God. Even more so, God freed you for a purpose. God freed you to live in a certain way. And he has given you the prescription. He's given you these laws. So again, let's look through these laws. I'm going to divide them with the outline that Jesus used. Jesus always had good outlines. So I want to use the outlines that Jesus used. What did Jesus say as he broke this apart? Jesus said that all of the law and all of the prophets could be summarized in this statement. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the outline he gave, Matthew chapter 22. So I want to use that outline. And obviously, as I go through these Ten Commandments, I'm not going to give an exhaustive, I'm not going to give an exhaustive explanation of each one. And you would be very proud so that we're not here all day long. Yesterday, my eight-year-old heard me saying that I was going to preach through the Ten Commandments today. And she said, does that mean we're having Sunday school? Like, are you even going to have Sunday school? Because it's going to take you so long to go through this. Yeah, you had Sunday school already, and you're going to get lunch in just a few moments. I just want to give you a brief survey based upon Jesus' outline, love God, love others. The first four commandments deal with loving God. They're about the vertical relationship we have with him. The last six are about loving other people. It's about the horizontal relationships we have with others. So look if you will, there in verse 3. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. Literally, he says, you shall have no other gods before my face. Now, our God can see where. He can see everywhere. He can see what's going on. He knows this day what's going on in our lives. He can see every area of creation in his universe. So when he says, don't have any other gods before me, what he's saying is, don't have any other gods. Don't put any before my face. I can see everywhere. I can see this whole universe. So don't try to create a God. Don't put a God before me. What he's saying is, I'm the only God. There is only one. Now, when I talk about a culture, too often people think just of the national implications. But I want you to know today that when I'm covering this, and we begin here with the idea that there is a God, that culture must pervade our family life, our church life, and then it will go out into our communities and beyond. I love what Tony Evans said some years ago. He said, too many of us worry about the White House when we should be worried about our house, when we need to be worried about how we're living and how we're showing that 
way of godliness. How we begin with that foundation that he is God and there is no other. Now, I know most of you in this place would say, oh, yeah, that's easy. I believe there's one God. But what I see developing even in the pews, even in the churches, is a pluralistic view of things. Like all religion seems to lead to the same place. You see that creeping into our theologies. That somehow we think, oh yeah, if they're religious, then that's fine. No, it's not. There is one God. There is one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is the one that must permeate our lives. He must be the foundation of who we are. And we must reject any type of pluralistic kind of thinking. I will tell you, it's hard sometimes. It's very difficult to share Christ with people that have pluralistic views in their lives. I was in India, for example, a few years ago. I was talking to a young lady of obviously a Hindu background. And as I was talking to her, I was sharing with her who Christ was and what he had done, and she had some background, and she looked at me and she said, yes, Jesus is God. And I went, yeah. I mean, you just want to like celebrate, right? I was sitting on the steps of a pagan temple when I was sharing with her that, and I just wanted to jump up and say, yes, we made it happen. She just made her confession that Jesus is God. And then she turned to me and she said, yes, Jesus is God, many, many gods, many, many gods. Well, I didn't think I was quite the evangelist then that I had thought I was just a few minutes before. Because what she was thinking was, Jesus is just one of many. Jesus is just one of many ways. Jesus is just one of many gods. And again, what you'll see, even in the university setting, you'll see in the community setting, no matter where you are these days, you'll find that. You'll find people who will be like, yeah, yeah, that's your way, and that's good, but that's not necessarily everybody's way. All religions are just as good. No, there is one God. Understand how radical this was as it was given by God. I mean, when you had gone into Egypt or just come out of Egypt, they would have believed in many gods. They're going into Canaan, and they're all kinds of gods, a god for every kind of thing you could imagine. And yet, God says, you've got to live a radical existence of insisting that there is one God. There is one God that is above all. I remember looking at that young lady and saying to her, did you know that Jesus claimed to be the only way that he, his way was the only She said, no, no, I didn't, I didn't know. Jesus said that. I said, Jesus said that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes unto the Father except through him. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said it was only through him that people would come to salvation. So we need to understand that in our lives. We're going to have the proper thinking, the way of life, There is one God. We recognize him. The second commandment talks about how we reverence him or worship him. So we recognize there's one God, but we also commit ourselves to fully reverence or worship this God. Look, if you will, again in verse 4. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to those third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me 
and keep my commandments. He said, you are not to make any idols, any carved images. You're not to go worship other things. If I'm the only God, then you're to worship me and to worship me alone. Now, I understand that it takes a little bit to take this Exodus passage and bring it into the 21st century because most of us know that we don't go around worshiping carved images here in the United States. You, you don't see many totem poles where people are bowing down. I mean, you might go through Ruston and you really, you just don't see that, do you? I mean, drive down Kentucky, you'll not see a totem pole. You'll not see anything like that. You, maybe Mitchell Orchard, you might, but nowhere else. I mean, the hurricane destroyed a few of them, but if there's nothing like that that you'll really find around here that people worship. But that doesn't mean that we don't have issues with idolatry, does it? We've just sophisticated our idols. Our idols look nice. They drive well. That We can play them. We can work with them. Idolatry can take on a whole lot of different ways. It can be demonstrated at the hunting lease. It can be demonstrated at the country club. It can be demonstrated... Well, it can be demonstrated through sports. It can be demonstrated by your job or your education because you may just worship your job. I tell people all the time, look at where you spend your time and look at where you spend your money. And a lot of times you'll find an idol that is hiding there in your life because it's what you commit yourself to. And God said for you to have a good, godly way of life, you got to recognize him and you've got to reverence him alone. Worship him alone. Because if you don't, it will have impact on the generations to come. Now, God is not saying that he's a mean God and he's just going to punish the innocent generations that will come afterwards. That's not what he's saying to the third and the fourth. What he means is, is that if you teach your children to do this, to worship in this way or to give themselves to idols then that will continue to carry out in their lives so often. And God's not going to excuse their ignorance. He wants them to come to him and to worship him alone. He says he is a jealous God. The word jealous, that's kind of a negative term, at least in our kind of thinking. I mean, you don't want to be jealous, do you? I mean, how many people want to say, yeah, I'm jealous today? Well, nobody in this place would do that. You're not proud of your jealousy and to hear God described as jealous, that's strange. As a matter of fact, Oprah Winfrey said that she heard a sermon at the age of 27 on the jealous God. And when she heard that term used of God, she walked out of the church and she wanted to have nothing else to do with God or Christianity. That's what she said by her own testimony. Because it's such a tough word to think of. But maybe, maybe we need to rethink that word. What does that word mean? Well... Mr. Charles Covington, he was my high school Bible teacher. He helped me get my mind wrapped around that word jealous just a little bit. He said, okay, guys, here you are in school, and many of you, you have girlfriends. And let's say your girlfriend is across campus, and you see another guy approach her and begin talking to her, and all of a sudden, what happens? You become jealous. And why do you become jealous? Because that's my girlfriend my girlfriend and you use that personal pronoun to describe your girlfriend but the problem is that personal pronoun suggests 
that you possess her, that you own her, that you, in a sense, are her God, and you are not. You are not her God. You do not possess her. She is not some kind of possession for you to possess. You're not her God. You can't be, you have no right to be jealous. But think about, think about God himself. When he looks at us and he says, those are my people, he can say that truthfully. Why? Because he has bought us by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his. The New Testament says that we are not our own, we are his. And when he looks at us, he has the right to be our God. And there is no other that can lay claim to us. There is no other that can be truly jealous. You and I couldn't be truly jealous, but he can be because he is God and he possesses us. And don't miss this. The reason he is jealous for this relationship with you is because he loves you that much. He is jealous. And he wants you to come to him and relate to him. So this first part of the commandments is about loving God. Love him by recognizing him. Love him by reverencing him, by worshiping him. Hey, love him by taking his name in a positive manner, a constructive manner. Notice it's stated here in the negative, obviously, in verse 7. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. He says, you are not to... Use the name of God in a flippant or careless way. Why? Because for the Old Testament and the New Testament believers, the name signified the person. The name signified the character. For example, in the Old Testament, Esau. Esau is named Esau. Why? Because he's red and hairy. Go back and look at it again. That's the reason. He carries around the name Esau all of his life because he was red and he was hairy. By the way, there's no Esau's in here today? Nobody's named Esau? Good, good. I mean, I'm not sure I'd want to carry that one around. I think, I'd, I, think I would lobby for a name change somewhere along the way. How about Jacob? You know what his name meant? Heel. It's because when he was born, he was grabbing onto his big brother's heel, and he was named Heel. But also, he grew into that name because he was a real heel. He was a deceptive individual. Jacob, I'm just giving you that to let you know that names always signified the person and the character. So when God says, don't use my name in vain, he's saying, don't besmirch my personhood. Don't take away from my character. When you use it in a flippant way, and maybe we could do that when we're talking, we're just using it carelessly or in our actions. The Jews wanted to protect, in a sense, the reputation in the name of God. So what would they do? Well, they would take that name of God, Yahweh, which means coven, the covenant name of God. It's the way God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. He said, I am that I am, Yahweh. And when it was in the text, the Jewish reader would not read the name Yahweh. I remember being in Hebrew class, and we were taught the same thing. Don't read the name Yahweh. Don't say it out loud. 
Instead, you would say the word Adonai, which also could mean Lord or Sir, but it wasn't the covenant name. So we'd go through reading, and there was Yahweh in the text, and we were not supposed to even speak the name, just as the early Jewish believers did not. We would say Adonai. It was, it was to value the name. I say to you that you and I need to give more attention in the way we respect God, in the way we speak, but also in our actions, in the way we live, because we can take away from his name in the way we live. Hey, a few months ago, one of our staff members was out eating here in Ruston, and as he was finishing his meal, he paid like many of us would pay, he paid with a credit card, and then he left the restaurant. He, uh, he found a call a couple of days later on his phone that he'd returned. I think he was down in a vacation or something like that. And he called the number back and they informed him that his credit card number had been stolen and that it had been used. They had traced it back to the waiter who was here in Ruston who had served him. They had seen him on the camera at Walmart where he had spent all kinds of money and done all kinds of different things like that. Well, of course, they got all that reconciled. The time was coming up for the hearing. Our staff member said he thought he was going to go to the hearing and see what the judge said. And I said, well, what are you wanting? I mean, what are you, what are you thinking? You, you want him like locked up and this and this? He said, oh, no, no, I don't want any of that. He said, I just want him to think about his name. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, oh, I didn't tell you what his name was. His name was Christian or is Christian. That's his name, Christian. He said, and he just stole from me. He said, I just want him to let me just talk to him just a minute. He said, I don't care if he goes to jail or anything else. Don't worry about all that. I just want to look at him in the face and say, either change your ways or change your name. And let me just say, you and I, if we're believers in the Lord Jesus, and people know that we carry his name around, if we act in a way that would denigrate his name, we need, we need to change our ways. We need to enhance his reputation, not take away from it. Well, that fourth one, that fourth commandment, obviously deals with the Sabbath, with the rest that we should have in him. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six, day, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. He says, you need to rest in me. You need to recognize a Sabbath moment in your lives. Sabbath means what? Rest. It means a cessation of activity. Rest. That's what it means. There's a creational rhythm. God said, just as I rested the seventh day, it wasn't because God was tired, but God set the example. And Jesus reminded us that man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. In other words, God has given us something called the Sabbath or this idea of rest in our lives. And you know how many people just need rest? I mean, I look around me all the time. I see people burned out. 
I love technology, but do you know that technology has made it that we're always on? We're always working. We're always communicating. It's like sometimes we just need a Sabbath, do we not? We just need rest. And that's what God's saying here in this. And it's rest and it's reflection. And he says, it doesn't matter who you are, what kind of social status you have, economic status, you need to rest. And this Sabbath would be a moment that would mark the people, their identity. Like it would speak to others that this is what they're doing. They're resting. What they, they rest and they worshiped. They worshiped God. They loved him through resting and reflecting on him. And for us, Sabbath, technically we don't meet on the seventh day. We don't do that. Why? Because in the New Testament, they met on the first day of the week in order to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, to be able to declare his power and who he was and what he had done. But it's still the idea of coming together of rest and celebration, how we still need those moments. So love God. That's the first point of the outline. The second point is love others. Love others. The last six commandments deal all about our relationship with other people. I've broken it down this way. As you love others, first love your family. Because there in verse 12 it says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your parents. Love your folks. If you live in their house, follow their rules. Be obedient. I mean, that's what the scripture teaches us. You are to obey. Even afterwards, after you move out, you are still to show them respect and honor. Even as they grow older, you are to honor them. Paul says this is the first commandment with promise. And I don't know exactly how it all works out. It says that your life may be long. I don't know exactly how God all ways does these things but there is some type of promise that is in there that we are to experience life and the quality of life I know what my parents used to tell me they used to tell me if I didn't obey I might not see the long life that's what they used to say to me they can't do those kinds of things or say those things now in our culture but that's what they used to say to me but it says here here is here's what God's intention is it's for you to honor your folks and for them to love you and to, to honor you. I think there's a love in the family. But not, even, not just honor your parents, but it says that you should not commit adultery. That speaks at the heart of the marriage relationship, of loving your spouse. What is adultery? Adultery is any sexual relationship outside of the marriage relationship. What God intended always and has always designed is that you would have the proper expression of marriage. You would have the proper expression of sex, sex in marriage, I should say. That that's where it's supposed to be. It's in the context of marriage. So this would cover any premarital sex. This would cover extramarital sex. So beforehand, during, you are to be committed to your spouse, even now. Some of you are not married, but you are to keep your bodies pure right now for your spouse. You're going to be married one day. Well, I think it's going to be this one. Don't count on that. You should never count on that. It is in the proper context of marriage that you are to express yourself through sex. That's where it's supposed to be. 
And he says here, don't commit adultery. Sex is a sin against God, but it is interesting that when you, I say sex, sex outside of marriage is a sin against God. But when you look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, it also says that it is a sin against your own body, your own self. There are not many sins that are in that category. And what does it mean? It means it will destroy you if you're not careful. I have seen people's lives wrecked by this. I've seen them psychologically, mentally struggle. I've seen them physically face ramifications because they would not heed what this says. And they express themselves in a very deconstructive way. You and I are called to, again, enjoy sex within the marriage relationship. He says, do not commit adultery. Love your spouse. Love your spouse. Love your spouse whatever time frame you find yourself in. So love your family. Love everybody. Love everybody. That's really what the rest of this says. What is it? It says, you shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Love everybody else. Love your family. Love everybody. Demonstrate love. He says, do not murder. The old translation said, thou shalt not kill. Well, it's not just about killing. Because they obviously sacrificed animals. It wasn't about warfare because God would send people into battle and there would be death. This specifically talks about murder. It is about destroying somebody else's life. It is about taking what God had given them and snuffing it out. Now let me say this. Sometimes we as Baptists, we have been really good about telling people what we're against. We haven't been so good at telling people what we're for. So behind every one of these negatives, don't forget there's a positive. Don't commit murder. But that also means you should enhance life and try to affirm life and encourage life. Listen. You and I need to encourage a culture of life. When we see a black man killed, we should grieve. We should speak out. When we see a law officer killed, we should speak out. We should grieve for those families. It shouldn't be either or. We should say that this is right and this is wrong. We affirm what life is and we reject any form of murder. May I meddle just a moment? We also need to affirm the life of those that are in the womb. This is a cultural issue, but more than a cultural issue, it is a biblical issue. That for those that, that are in the womb, we need to promote life. We need to discourage. We need to speak out against abortion. But also... We need to show them what we're positive for. And what is that? We need to encourage adoption and foster care. We need to support the pregnancy support groups. We need to do everything we can on the positive side. 
instead of just railing against that which is negative. We need to affirm life. And Jesus said it's about the attitude as well. Remember Matthew chapter 5? He said, you've heard it said you should not commit murder or kill. And he says, but if you call your brother or refer to him as a raka or a fool, then you are in danger of hell fire. What does raka mean? Raka literally meant blockhead. That's what it meant in the New Testament, blockhead, wooden-headed one. And I know some of you look around and say, well, he is a blockhead. You all not, you can't, you don't want to do that. Jesus said, don't be, don't be calling people blockheads. Don't be calling people fools. You know, in the New Testament, what the word fool is in the Greek? More, which means moron. He said, don't do that. It means worth, seriously. You know why you, you shouldn't do that? Because when you start looking at somebody and, and addressing them as a worthless individual, then it's just another step before you take their life. Just one more step. Instead of dismissing people as worthless, we need to see each and every individual we come in contact with as the image bearer of God right there before us. That person bears the image of God. No matter who they are, no matter what they look like, no matter the background that comes with them, not, they are made in the image of God. And thus we should promote life and encourage it. So he says, love one another. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't take something that's not yours without permission. He says, don't bear false witness against other people. In other words, be truthful. Be people of integrity. It doesn't matter if you're in a courtroom and you're under oath or you're, you're out in the community. You ought to be truthful with individuals and live with integrity. You ought not to covet. It's the attitude, again, because when you begin to covet and you desire these other things of other people, instead of living in contentment, it will lead you to places you never want to go. You need to love others. You need to stand up for life. You need to speak up when life itself is being threatened. You need to maintain that which is right and holy, rejecting any type of Hatred, whether it's through racism or any other diminishing type of attitude, you are to love. So get this. This is the framework of a godly culture. This is the framework of a way of life in your household, in our church, and beyond. Now, before you walk out of here and say, well, that's a great sermon on morals. I don't want you to hear just a message of morality today. Because what I want to point out to you is this. You can't live this by yourself. If you go out of here and try to live this by yourself, you're going to be more than frustrated. You can't do it by yourself. You know why? Because you're simply human just like I am. But there was one that walked this earth. His name was Jesus Christ. That perfectly fulfilled every one of these. Every one. And because he fulfilled every one, it was the perfect sacrifice he died for us to pay our sin debt and to be resurrected. So that if we believe in him and trust in him, we have salvation. And this is what happens. When God saves us from our sin, he allows the Holy Spirit to come in 
to give us power for each day. And his son lives within us. As the son, Jesus himself, is part of who we are. And if he lives within us, then that means we have the power and the authority to fulfill his will for our lives. If you live out, leave out of here and try to live morality, just good things, again, you'll be frustrated. But if the Holy Spirit empowers you to do what you should do, you will find victory through him and through him alone. Today, as we close, I'm going to ask you, one, have you given your life to the Lord Jesus? If not, do it today. Stop waiting. Stop watching what everybody else is doing. Get in the game. Be a part of the kingdom. And then allow his power to give you the strength you need. Some of you are saved. That's great. He didn't save you just so you can live like you want to live. He saved you so he could help you live better than you could ever imagine. And when you live his will as expressed here, you will see much benefit in life and the community itself will as well. So I'm going to encourage you during this invitation to reflect on what God's calling you to do and to come and to be a part of what God's wanting to accomplish in your life. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning. Again, we thank you. We praise you. Lord, I ask you this morning to speak to each and every one of us here in this place. God, yes, many of us are saved, but not everybody. So I pray for those who've never committed their lives to you. They're living in frustration. They're living in their self-effort. They're relying on what they think is just goodness. And God, I pray that you just convict them and speak to them and bring them to salvation. God, I pray for those of us who are saved. Lord, that we wouldn't lean on our own energy, but we'd actually follow you. And we'd allow your spirit to fulfill this way of life. Help us to love you. Help us to love others. Help us to be those kind of people and help us to build that way of life in our families and in our churches and beyond. And God will give you the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?